Rebecca, thank you very much for reading and welcome everybody. It is wonderful if you were here for the coronation. It's wonderful to have you here, whether you were standing in the mall in the rain, whether you were in the abbey uh, in one of the VIP seats, or whether you were with us in the prom. It, and to underline what Catherine said, it is almost the same team who are running the prom, who are here running everything, the sound desk and the stewards and everything. So we're very, very grateful uh, for them being here this morning. Uh, Kafun also said that it was a little bit hard to get tickets for the prom. Mine are here, so I was very pleased to have these. Um, and harder still, of course, to get tickets for the coronation itself. So you can imagine maybe a little bit of um, high stress in the queue. Uh, queuing to get into the coronation. What if, what if I've left the ticket? I wonder how often they checked. Do I still have my tickets? But imagine, imagine not that um, I was turned away at the door for not having my prom praise tickets, but imagine if King Charles had been turned away at the door. Can you imagine the, um, you know, the reassuring tones of Hugh Edwards? Uh, the king and queen have now arrived at the great west door of the abbey in the diamond jubilee coach. And you know, something about stabilizers and gold leaf and whatever you want to know about the coach. And now in a, a new addition to this ancient ceremony, a chorister from the abbey will meet them at the door. Quite a moment for that 14-year-old. He will remember it for the rest of his life. But then instead of we welcome you, Imagine the 14-year-old says, go away. (laughs) Be quite a moment, wouldn't it? Or in the service, be even worse. I think maybe in the service, um, that moment where the king turned to east and to south and to west and to north, I think that was um, to do with chess. I think he has to prove that he can move in every direction. (laughs) But um, imagine at that moment... If Baroness Amos, instead of, are you willing to do homage and service, if instead she had said to us, will you reject this man? And the Abbey had shouted, go away. I don't quite know how um, events would have unrolled from there. Um, There were 7,000 soldiers just outside the door who uh, might have had an opinion on what should have happened next. But um, the story, the story of Jesus... The story of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, it does go like that. We don't need to imagine. It is an indelible part of the historical record is the rejection and then murder of Jesus Christ. And remarkably, uh, the, the murder of a king was front and center yesterday, wasn't it? So whether it was um, Rico Tice in the Royal Albert Hall or His Grace, the Archbishop of Canterbury in Westminster Abbey, they both took us there. Jesus, his throne was a cross. His crown was made of thorns. Now, also, we're in Matthew's Gospel deliberately for the coronation. As Carfoon said, these Gospels, they're on your seats. We're on page seven. If you close them and they are, they are yours to take away with you. And we're here in Matthew to learn how Jesus' own disciples understood Jesus as king. Because Matthew, he thinks that you will live or die eternally based on your choice about that rejected king. And Jesus' death, it was not a shocker at the end of his life. And it wasn't a horrible mistake. It began on page 7. 
don't know if you realize that these um, lovely, familiar Christmas verses, they show us what is coming for Jesus over 30 years later. So the, the lovely story of the wise men, the, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. I wonder, was anyone else here uh, a wise man in the school nativity play when you were younger? I was. It's a good gig. You just need a tea towel and a dressing gown. Uh, and it's sort of, you feel important, but there's not too many lines to learn. Um, I wonder, did a, a, you know, a poor, rushed primary school teacher ever get it wrong and just keep going to the end of the story in the nativity? Uh, Rebecca has just read to us a story of brutal child murder. If you look at verse 16, just over the page, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under uh, Jesus' birth is surrounded by state-sponsored brutality and utter tragedy for maybe 20, maybe 30 families that night, but also potential tragedy for you and for me. See, uh, Jesus, the king, he came to do something for for us. Uh, king Charles, yesterday, he promised to serve his people, but Jesus goes one step further. Jesus said he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you were to take this away and keep reading, that is on page 55. Uh, Near the end, you'd find those words. But just for now, just turn back one page and look at page 6. Page 6, chapter 1, verse 21. We learn that the very name Jesus means saved. And the angel tells Joseph that is because Jesus will save his people from their sins. So Jesus, he came to do something for you and me, to save us from our sins. Something important, if you have ever stopped to ask how it will go for you, if there is a God who cares how you treat other people, a God who sees, and in particular sees through all of my lies and my excuses through to what I really am like. Jesus came as undoubted king to do something important and something generous for us. And from the beginning to the end of his life, human beings told him to go away and tried and then succeeded in killing him, which um, is a problem. Because save his people from their sins, that is one of those jobs we cannot do for ourselves. There's lots of those jobs, aren't there? Uh, On Wednesday this week, a team of contractors is coming to my house, and they're coming to rip out an asbestos ceiling so they can fix a gas leak. Okay, so there's two of the big ones there on there. Uh, I've never seen so many forms and health and safety and everything. But what if on Wednesday, maybe about 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, I went upstairs and said this to my wife. Um, Claire, uh, don't be worried, but um, I uh, I didn't like them. Didn't li- I? Don't know what it was. I just didn't like them, so I told them to go away. Uh, the team with their you know their air filters and their asbestos hoovers or whatever you have, uh, and the ceiling airtight kit. I didn't think we needed them. I'm just going to grab a couple of hammers and do it myself. Is that okay? Jesus, the King, he came to do a job that we cannot do for ourselves. And the human race told him to go away. And actually, right on page 7 
uh, which is page seven of the New Testament. Matthew comes first. Matthew wants us to know what a bad idea that is. He wants to talk to us about that plan. Because for Matthew, this is something that all of us are involved in. Unless we have done active homage to Jesus as king, unless we daily seek to live with him as our king, unless we've embraced his offer to help take away our sin and our guilt, well, then Matthew says we are without help. And he wants to talk to us about that. And he wants to use Herod as the worked example. Because the the account we've had read this morning Um, It's not actually a story about three kings at all. I know that's what the carols say, that's what we sing. Um, There are not three kings in this account. I'm sorry to Team Casper and Team Melchior and Team Belshazzar, if you can remember which one you were in the Nativity play. Um, We actually have no idea how many there were of them. may have been more than three. And they were wise men, not kings. So there are not three kings in this account, but there are two. There are two kings in this account, and that is the problem. This is a story about two rival kings. Uh, We said last week, Herod, King Herod, he is already king. And when the the Magi come to ask him, verse 2, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? That is a problem, because he is in his mid-60s, and his children are, are 25 and upwards. So anyone born king of the Jews is a threat. And the the terrible murder of the babies, that is because Herod will not let anyone else be king while he is king. This is a man who murdered several of his own adult sons. Uh, He's not worried about some baby who God wants to be king. And actually, that is Matthew's first lesson for us this morning. And it was, I think, visually made obvious in the broadcast yesterday. So here's the first point. It is that thrones are made for one. Um, Yesterday, even buried in all of the the costume and the music, it was clear, wasn't it? Only one man in Britain can wake up this morning and think, oh, I'm the king of the United Kingdom. Uh, That was the point of everything yesterday. The point of Penny Mordaunt, you know, deadlifting the piece of steel for an hour and a half. The point of the throne and the crown and the armbands and the vegan oil and all the rest of it. He is king and I am not. That was the point. And I'm sorry if you have been harboring a a secret lifelong ambition to be king. Uh, Yesterday was designed to put the issue beyond doubt. And Herod, Herod hears the news of a new king in verse 2. And not just any king, but a a miraculously announced, star-heralded, long-ago prophesied king of all the world. And Herod, verse 3, he is disturbed it says, because he knows that you cannot share a throne. Thrones are made for one. And uh, maybe you notice the the hypocrisy in verse 8 and the tone of menace. He sends them to Bethlehem, says, tell me, tell me where to find him so that I too may go and worship him. Now that, that is exactly what the king of Israel should say when God's new king is announced. Worship, we said last week, means to be flat on your face in the dirt, giving everything to the other guy. Herod, he knows what to do, and he pretends that he wants to. But even here, look at verse 7. Even here, he is working on the backup plan. Uh, Get the date. Get the place. 
Okay, less than two years, Bethlehem. Thank you, that'll do. So that verse 12, when God sends the Magi home another way to foil his plan to murder one baby, he is ready with plan B. And it is appalling. This is global, newsworthy, awful. Verse 16, the soldiers, they arrive early one morning and they go house to house, rounding up every male child under the age of two, perhaps 40, 50 of them in this small town and its region. And like uh, dictators everywhere around the world, like um, the pharaoh in Egypt at the very beginning of the Bible, uh, blood must flow to keep him on his throne. But the trouble for us this, this afternoon is that um, Matthew will not keep Herod in the history books. Matthew is here to ask us whether we want to be disciples of Jesus. And in particular, he wants to ask us if we want to do the same as Herod or the opposite of Herod. See, God sent a king to do something for us that we cannot do ourselves to save his people from their sins. It's it's astonishingly generous, but it is also confronting. In part, I think, because he sent his rescue in king form. He sent a king. Have you thought about that before? You may think it's annoying of God to send his rescuer as a king. Um, not all rescuers are like that. Uh, doctors, for instance, they don't you know, require you to bow down before them, before they will save you from your sickness. But the problem that the human race has is a rebellion problem. The human sickness is a rebellion problem. That is what what sin is, properly understood. It's not something that a, a few bad people like Herod do. It's something that we all share if we don't submit to God as king. So we have a rebellion problem, and God sends a submission solution. He, he will forgive all past rebellions but we must kneel before his king. And um, Herod, he is here, I think, to illustrate how that makes most of us feel uh, and to offer us the choice. So here's the choice. If thrones are made for one, our choice is to worship Jesus or kill him. See, the, uh, the extraordinary thing about Herod, um, see if you agree with me, take this away and read it. I think he's not presented here as ignorant Uh, or even unbalanced, or or bloodthirsty, or sadistic. For Herod, this is simply a routine piece of kingdom management. And Herod, notice, he he does this because he knows who this baby is. And they're able to look up a 700-year-old book simply to find out where he will be. And there's lots else in that book that tells him how this king should be treated. So your choice is copy the Magi or copy Herod. We said last week about the Magi, they are men of serious status and wealth, and they get down on their faces at the feet of this baby. Verse 10, verse 11. That's option one. Respond to God's offer of forgiveness with a, with a submission that answers that rebellion problem. Worship him. But Herod, Herod chooses option two. He chooses to kill God's king. And and notice as you read, 
He does that because the evidence is so overwhelming. So 700-year-old prophecy, check. Uh, Star in the sky, check. Visitors from the east, check. Angels, check. And dreams, check. It's because the evidence is so good that Herod simply cannot let this slip by. If this baby lives, then Herod will have to give way to God's rule and God's king. And this choice, this is the choice that people who meet Jesus, they make again and again through his life. So if you read Matthew, you would read about angry mobs and calls for his death and state-sponsored plans to kill him, and then the final moment where they get their way. And it's a, a strange thing here in the UK that we have insulated ourselves from Jesus and that choice that he brings us. And I wonder actually whether yesterday may in fact be part of the problem. So yesterday we had all of the symbols of absolute monarchy. I mean, you don't need an A-level in medieval history to know what the sword is for, uh, to know what the messaging was. But it was all done with a heavy dose of, you know, wink, we don't really mean it anymore. Um, I thought um, that the moment when Rishi Sunak arrived just very quietly in a suit uh, and he, you know, he got up in the congregation to do a job that any of us could do as Rebecca did for us, read the reading and sat down again. Um, whatever else was happening yesterday, Rishi Sunak was not transferring power to King Charles. Uh, the, the papers last week talked about that, um, the homage of the people, that moment. And the papers called it a wonderful, democratic, and inclusive gesture, which um, took some thinking about that for me for a bit. The, the swearing of allegiance to a king is a democratic gesture. <laughs> but actually, um, that's the point. Because nobody really expects King Charles to come to their house and actually tell them what to do. Um, and we, we crown a, a constitutional monarch using all of the, the symbols of absolute rule. And we surround it with talk about God and about Jesus as King of Kings. And so perhaps we all think that Jesus is that sort of monarch too. Sort of basically democratic. Which means I don't notice as I read that Jesus is giving me commands all the way through. Don't notice that, that when I want to be greedy, Jesus, he says no. And when I want to keep grudges, Jesus, he says turn the other cheek and forgive. And when I uh, see human needs, Jesus says love as a command. And when I want to run my life as if I am the absolute authority, Jesus, he says kneel. And if I thought about that, every time I go to exercise my own authority over my life, perhaps I would feel more like Herod. You see, our reaction, it feels different because we simply, we don't see Jesus as any kind of threat or we don't see his offer as anything that we need. But Herod, he shows us openly and dramatically what our hearts do quietly and repeatedly every day. Jesus, he is not our king. Many of our actions proclaim that. And if he arrived to rule, 
how many of us would resist and defend our own thrones just as passionately as Herod defends his? So one way or another, God sends Jesus to the the great east door of our global civilization, and instead of a choir boy, we send a man called Herod to tell him to go away. But the, um, the chapter, it ends with Herod's failure. It's quite striking when you think about it. Herod the king, Herod the great, he sends his army to kill a baby, and he fails. Verse 12, God sends the Magi back another way. Verse 13, God sends the family as refugees to Egypt until the death of Herod. Mentioned twice here, the one who dies in the story is not Jesus, it's Herod. Uh, So uh, there is only room for one on the throne. You must choose, worship or kill him. And third, we do that until we see Jesus on his throne. Um, Herod, he wants Jesus dead. God wants him on a throne. And who is going to win? Who's going to win? Well, uh, there's some Old Testament history wrapped around these verses for those who know the rest of the Bible. Verse 15, it deliberately makes us think of God's people in Egypt at the beginning of the Bible, at risk, under threat from the global superpower and Pharaoh the king, saying this is going to end just the same way. Pharaoh lost and God's people won. Uh, Verse 18 makes us think uh, deliberately of the return from exile. So again, the global superpower, Babylon, conquered and drove God's people out of the land. But the very fact that Herod can call himself king of Israel 500 years later means that we know that God rescued his people then as well. And verse 23 tells us that this is how God does things characteristically. A humble, despised refugee king from Nazareth, that is exactly who God would appoint. Exactly who God would offer us on a cross to pay the price for our rebellion against God and who God would raise from the dead and place back on his throne. And Matthew, who knew Jesus well, he is telling us that we will meet Jesus on a real throne one day, all of us, uh, and it will not be a democratic piece of theatre, that throne. It will be a real throne. And you can feel Herod's shock, can't you? Imagine, um, I don't know if there will be a queue, but you can imagine like the queue for the coronation, there'll be a queue that day. And I wonder if we begin to feel sympathy, even for this brutal man. So he's queuing for for God's verdict on his life and his choices. And maybe the, the word comes back down the line that surprisingly there's a human being sitting on the throne, giving out the verdicts. And Herod um, sends the word back up, said, could you find out who? Who is it? Who's on the throne? And it comes back. It's a a Jewish man from the first century. And Herod thinks, oh, good. That's good. One of mine. Uh, Maybe I'll be able to negotiate with him. Then he turns the, the final corner and realizes the one on the throne is the baby who he tried to kill the one who God has placed there, despite all his best efforts. And Herod, if we could ask him now, I think he would push us towards what the Magi did, not what he did. Don't you? 
Uh, The Magi, they're, they're not Jewish. They're part of the ancient enemy, probably. But when they hear about this king, they are full of love and joy, and they fall on their faces before him and offer him everything. And the one who God sent to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, he saves them from their sins. He embraces them on his throne and brings them into his kingdom. So can I ask you to do um, one of two things uh, this morning and in the rest of the week, please? Um, Please take these away and read them. Do you see it matters at least enough to do that? Um, Things could have gone so differently for Herod. Instead of sitting in his palace, he could have gone with the Magi. Could have asked Mary and Joseph some questions. Tell me about the angels, the dreams. Why do you think this baby is God's son? And that is an invitation, really, that Matthew makes to you through his book. Uh, Take them, read them, consider, uh, and read through. You could perhaps do that with five to ten other people at Christianity Explored, and the the website for that is printed on the back uh, cover of this book. Um, Read and think. But then second... If you find yourself convinced by Jesus, well then, do what the the Magi did. You might like to fold down the corner of page 7, because everything you would need to do is there. Verse 10, uh, verse 9, they go to find Jesus. Verse 10, they're overjoyed. Verse 11, they bowed down and worshipped him, and they opened their treasures, and they present him with gifts. Uh, And if you are convinced by Jesus and you were to do that, just to say that sincerely to him and intend to live that in your life, well, then Jesus, again, he would embrace you from his throne as friend and brother to the King of Kings.